Hello, welcome to the Big Scuba Show. Hi, my name is Stratis Kass and I'm a diving instructor and a filmmaker and I'm on the Big Scuba podcast and uh, I'm here to talk about Greece, about Greece cave diving and in specifics and about my first and new book called Close Calls and um, together with the guys we're here to try to grow the community and bring more young people into scuba diving which is what we need in order to be sustainable. Thank you very much for listening. Hello everybody, welcome to the Big Scuba Podcast. My name is Ian and I'm talking to you from the lovely world of Bungie in Suffolk and on the line by the power of Zoom, we have my illustrious co-host Gemma in Peakfield in Suffolk by the sea. Absolutely, so welcome and thank you for downloading. This is a bonus episode so we've only just planned this and come back very quickly and um jen who have we got on this bonus edition we are talking to stratus cass he is a diving instructor filmmaker and quite a big cave diver and cave instructor and he's also recently brought out a book his first book called close calls where he's got over or 60, 70 people that have contributed and spoken about their stories of close calls and what they learned from it, basically. Yeah, and it seems like you've got to have your selfie taken with this book because I've seen lots of people on social media all having selfies with their book, with this yeah, book. Yeah, so just before we catch up with Stratus, we have had a couple of calls on the big scuba bat phone from uh, a few of the contributors to the book. So here they are, give them a listen, and then we'll get uh, back to Stratus and have a good chat with him. Hello caller, please leave your message after the tone. Remember to leave your name and where you are calling from so that we may play it on the wireless. Thank you for calling. Please leave your message after the tone. Hi everyone. My name's Gary Dallas from Simply Sidemount and Simply Tech. I'm just calling in to the Big Scuba podcast to say hi to Gemma and Ian and to give a big shout out to Stratiscast's new book called Close Calls. I'm really honoured <clears throat> and privileged to be asked to write a chapter in his book and I really hope that the the uh, story that I've told uh, amongst everybody else's stories as well is going to help towards uh, better awareness and diver safety and um, look forward to reading everybody else's and I hope everyone gets out there and rather than listen to each individual talking about a story that, that they can all just sit there and listen to uh, read a book in their own time and uh, and, and take what they, they can from it. So I look forward to seeing Stratus in uh, later on in uh, this year over in um, Sardinia. And uh, I'll be seeing Gemma and Ian later on this month. So bye for now, everyone. Hi, my name is Alessandra Figari. I'm Italian and I'm a cave 
Trimix uh, and a CCR instructor. I've been asked to be a contributor for the book Close Calls, and I've been honored for that. I strongly believe uh, that learning through accident analysis is an essential way to teach others to avoid the same mistake. The incident I've been describing is based on one dive where I learned how it's important to avoid changing too many things at once in your gear configuration, how training and trust and communications are essentials for your survival in a dive, and how perceiving that something is not okay should alert your senses and make you decide for aborting the dive or being ready for taking actions to prevent a serious accident. The story that have been reported in close calls will allow all divers, no matter their level of training, to learn from the mistakes of others and to realize how and why they were able to survive. We can always learn more. Safe diving to all. Hello. My name is Dr. Sonia Rowley. I'm at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and my research focuses on Gorgonian octocorals, or seafan corals, primarily in the mesophotic zone. I use uh, rebreather diving technology to do my research. I was asked by Michael Menduno to contribute towards um, Stratus Cass' book, Close Calls. He thought that with all the years, I have 37 years of diving experience, that perhaps I'd be able to contribute. I'd had no incidences um, until I started working with a particular diving group um, towards the end of 2012, using a certain rebreather. Um, my story is uh, from Antatol in, in the Federated States of Micronesia. and. It was very hard to write, and this is very hard to talk about. I was subject to incessant and constant sexual harassment and abuse, um, and the rebreather was consistently faulty and nearly took my life several times. But as a determined scientist with no money, having just finished my PhD, I was convinced I'd make it work. And it was a horrendous experience. So I wrote my story to, in essence, help others where I failed and to prevent history from repeating itself. And I guess I didn't fail because I'm still here. Um, but people, you know, just don't take any crap from the spin doctors, the big names or anything. Do a lot of homework and a research on your rebreather. It's extremely important. I now dive a Liberty, a Dive Soft Liberty rebreather, and I have not had a single incident since. I hope that this is helpful and, um, and that it helps someone and that science and diving can be a clean, well-lit place. Thank you for allowing me to share. Hey Stratus, a quick message from me, Lee Bishop here in sunny England. Congratulations on the book, Close Calls. I'm sure right now you're bathing in the glory with your feet up at your new million-dollar home overlooking Malibu Beach next door, perhaps to J.K. Rowling, just on the back of it. 
As a co-founder and organiser of Eurotech, the Advanced Diving Conference, I'm proud that you're in that great list of past speakers that have entertained and educated so many divers at the show over the years. I've always said that the conference opens doors for people and many great ideas for expeditions and advances in technology have sprung from people just meeting others there. So look, I'm super proud to hear that the, the idea of the book was conceived by yourself and Eduardo Pavia when you both met at the last brilliant Eurotech that we held. Hopefully, if the world gets back to a degree of normality, we can once again host another Eurotech conference. And look, you have my word that we'll give you a little table to sit in the corner all on your own and sign copies of your books for people. Until then, my friend, look, put your feet up and please ask that butler of yours to bring you another cocktail and drink it on me. Cheers, fella. End of messages. If you want to feature on the Big Scooper podcast, please tell us about what you are doing under the water or on the water. Send us a quick voice recording via WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven eight one zero 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 five nine two four. Thank you. Excellent. That was really good. And thank you for calling the Big Scuba Bat phone and leaving us a lovely message. Right. Let's get back to Stratus Cas. We thought we would have some of that and invite invite him on. Yeah. Yeah. So you have yeah, an interesting conversation with him. And he talks about his diving in Greece and the Greek cave system, which is yeah, amazing. And I think a lot of people would be very surprised about what Greece has got to offer. Yeah. Yeah. So was I. So that's really good. Okay, right. Well, that's brilliant. Let's sit back and let's invite him on. Yeah, so this is episode 58, bonus edition, Stratus Cass. Awesome. Stratus Cass, you're the diving instructor and explorer, filmmaker and adventurer and storyteller. Welcome to the Big Scuba podcast. Online is myself, Ian and Gemma as well. And we're talking to you uh, in Suffolk and you are at home in Greece, near Athens. So tell us about yourself and, uh, you know, who you are and what you what you do. Well, nice to meet you guys. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a really Good to meet you too. pleasure. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the book and about what I do. So, uh, like you said, my name is Stratis. I'm half Greek, half Italian. And um, I'm a filmmaker and photographer by profession for the last 30 years. And diving was always my passion, generally the outdoors. Most of my filming and a lot of my photography also has to do with adventures and, you know, nature and seclusion, if you can say, Mm -hmm. if you can describe it like that. I'm more a fan of nature and open spaces than I am of big cities and chaos. So... Diving is the ideal sport for anybody that feels like he wants to be left alone. That's how I felt when I was starting to dive. Phones were not ringing, emails were not there. The people who wanted to join me had to commit somehow, at least to train basically, you know, they just don't follow you up the mountain. They have to do it more properly. So I like that. And also I like the silence. So diving slowly started to become my way out after a week of craziness in London or New York, it was like, okay, what do I do? I go party, which sometimes it happened, but mostly I found myself either alone in the cabin or going somewhere to dive. And slowly, slowly, I saw that that was something that was giving me pleasure mm-hmm. enough to become my alter ego in a way. Yeah. And then one day, the two things started to 
to bond and to blend. And I started to do a lot of filming that had to do with diving. Some of it was successful in the sense that, you know, I kept that kind of sense of beauty that diving could offer. And some of them became too professional. So I revisited the old uh, world of filmmaking, etc. Yeah. And uh, along the way, I also realized that, you know, some of my friends, they started to, because I had progressed into technical diving and cave diving, because this was my my big passion in diving in general, they started to ask me, why don't I show them? And slowly I started flirting with the idea to become an instructor, not so much for the ego part of it, but because there was a lack of um, options that you had in the locations where I was living with my friends and, and the group around me. And I found a lot of pleasure and joy in teaching cave diving. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a diving instructor, but eventually I'm mostly a, I'm almost exclusively a cave diving instructor. I don't do any deep diving, neither on my own, personally, per se. I don't, it's not that I don't enjoy ocean diving. I'm kind of terrified of sharks and big animals. So Mm. uh, cave diving offered me also the opportunity to hide from all of that, you know, mostly. (laughs) No sharks in caves. (laughs) I found in Florida that there is alligators and it's just as bad in, in, in terms of fear, so. They have big teeth too. They do, and they go deeper than you would think. Mm. So apart from that, uh, cave diving was my big passion. I really liked the idea. I don't come from a caving uh, background, and I don't come from um, from any background that has to do with geology or my charm with you. I mean, I end up learning to like the formations and the rocks, but for me it was mostly the sense of surrealism that a cave could offer you. Yeah. At the moment, we will dive into a cave space, after a small restriction, suddenly there will be a room 600 feet big. And this is something totally abstract in a regular life on Earth. That idea, uh, together with the sense of flying that we all get when we dive, but it's much more emphasized in a cave because of the clarity of the water, it was what captured me. So I basically started diving almost exclusively in caves for many years. Mm-hmm. I would... Uh, I will do water dives in order to keep fit or, you know, to keep my training up when it was not possible to cave dive. But eventually cave diving was the only diving that I wanted to do. And I think right now, probably 80% of my diving is evolving around caves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how also the cave diving instructor started because I realized that, you know, I wanted to better my, my level as a diver and by showing Initially, just, you know, on a friendly level, things to some of my friends, I realized that, you know, teaching something makes you better at what you do. So I went through the whole progress and I became an instructor with uh, various agencies, including SSI and INTD and CMAS, and uh, really, really enjoyed doing the instructing part of cave diving, which Greece actually offers a great opportunity for it because we have the caves that are available all year long. We don't really get affected by weather much, even if there is a lot of rainfall. For some geological mystery, there are, they don't affect the caves like they do in Central Europe. Yeah. We have crazy visibility. And uh, so it, it kind of became also a place for a lot of people to come internationally to train here. And uh, this is, let's say, my history in diving. Then because of the visuals and the film, I got invited to present cave diving from Greece in various conferences around Central Europe, like Eurotech in England, or, you know, Tech Dive in Belgium and other places in Italy. And there I started to meet people from the industry, because before for me, diving was not so much about, 
who is important, who is a big diver, etc. Because it was just a nice escape from my daily life. Once I started meeting these people, I, in one of those shows, actually, during Eurotech in 2018, I, I was approached by um, one of the divers that is present in the book. And as I spoke to him, because he's also Italian, so we come from the same country, and uh, I asked him, okay, what, what are you talking about? What's your presentation? So he told me I'm talking about this and that, but my dream is one day to make a presentation about all my mistakes. And in that moment, something clicked, which was A, the idea, and B, I remembered my very big mistake that I did at the beginning of my cave diving mm-hmm. progress, let's say, which not only I hide from the world because <clears throat> I was not ashamed, but I was like, okay, that's not nice. I was also didn't want to create fear to my family because, you know, there were moments that I thought that I would not get out. And also, most importantly, I wanted to completely reject from my mind as something that has happened to me because it was so terrorizing for such a long time because it was not a momentary, you get scared, you're jumping, you're skiing, and then there is a turn and you see a rock. You avoid that rock for a few seconds, you're shocked, mm-hmm. but you take it off. Yeah. When you have 40 minutes before you find the exit, that's a long buildup of fear that it actually progresses into pre-panic state. That's not a pleasant state. And I wanted to remove it as a story from my head. So I completely forgot about it. So when he challenged me with that, without meaning it, I realized, and I'm like, you know what? By removing it, I was not as good as an instructor as I could be. Mm-hmm. I was not as good as a team buddy as I could be. As I was, I was eventually not as good as a husband as I could be because I was hiding the reality of something important to a person that was close to me just because. So I decided to go the other way and to open up everything. And then at some point I said, okay, if I talk about it, five people will listen. But if all the big names that we look up to will talk about it, maybe something will change. And it seems like it's happening right now. Like I have a lot of requests to actually create a website mm-hmm. that will be dedicated and open as a, as a portal that anybody could post their own story and to create it as a place of reference for these close calls. So that's how the book ended up becoming a reality. And uh, please. We'll, we'll get a bit more to the book in a yeah. little while. Um, we want to talk a little bit more about you. So the, you know, you're the inspiration behind the book, okay. uh, Close Calls. And um, where did your name come from? Because I had a look on the, I looked it up. And it seems like your name, Stratus, is quite a, an old Greek name. Uh, it's a contemporary. I mean, it's it's all most Greek names. There are not really new Greek names in a way, because yeah. uh, in Greece and especially the time that I was born, you couldn't really not be baptized in a way. Yeah. And baptism was very, very controlled by the church, which, unlike the Church of England, had much more power and importance in the sense of like in the everyday. So. Yeah. You could be baptized under an existing name of a saint or an ancient Greek name from like ancient Greece. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't be baptized, uh, I don't know, forest. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't pass. So my name is, a, is the name of a Greek saint or a Byzantine saint, like 99% of the Greek names that are around that are not historic a figures. Greek saint of the water, perhaps, or some, or the sea? Uh, no, it's uh, a wish, but I don't know. That'd be really handy, wouldn't it? Would be. But it's actually, it helps for cave diving because my name literally translated means 
that I'm a correct path, I'm the correct way. So that's very good, isn't it? There you go. (laughs) So what got you, what started you diving? Was it somebody telling you about it or had you always wanted to get into the water? No, because obviously from what we discussed before, I was a little bit afraid of water and darkness because we all watched Jaws and ruined our childhood and continuity of our life by watching that terrible movie in sense of, you know, lovely movie, but you know, I wish I wouldn't have seen it. And um, I was just, it was just a choice on a cruise boat a long, long time ago that I could either go shopping for souvenirs or go diving. I'm like, okay, let's go go shopping. No, me neither. So I thought, okay, I'll try diving. How bad can it be? It's a little scary, but it was, I bet, you know, not so bad. And the moment I got in the water and I had, you know, like all of us had the first time this sensation of weightlessness and moving in three dimensions, it just never looked back. I came back and I dove every chance that I had, did a lot of traveling based poorly on that. And yeah, it entered in my life and uh, it became a passion on, on, on how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not so much of a gadget person or technology person. So for me, the more simple is my equipment or the more light is my equipment, the more happy I am. So, but the idea of how beautiful it felt and uh, like I said, weightless, moving in three dimensions, it was always there with me. Your parents weren't divers? My parents, not at all. I tried to teach my mother, who is not even a swimmer, how to dive and she has tried. And, that was good, but she tried. Yeah, she tried. For somebody who doesn't even swim, the fact that yeah. we managed to do a DSD properly, it was a big success and she liked it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So for your mum, who's not a swimmer, and then to try diving, she's nearly had it, she could have had her own page as well in the book. Well, yeah, we were shallow. <laughs> and we were like, you know, I don't even know if it's against the rules, so I don't want to visit that information. <laughs> no, right no, I don't. That was a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, no, my father is uh, completely afraid of anything that is in the sea. Like he will swim across the channel with completely black water underneath him without fear of what's underneath him. But he is terrified to look physically in the water mm. underneath. So for him, he was, he, he was never interested in participating in any of that, even though he is the one originally from all our family, because he's the Greek one who was born in the water and around the water and you would imagine that he would at least try to spare fish or free dive. Yeah. yeah. Not at all. Yeah. It was something that purely came to me because uh, it was that or shopping. So there you go. Yeah, it was a good choice. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> really good. I think, um, so filmmaking and dive and photography. So you managed to merge them all into one. And I presume like diving with a, because you dive on a rebreather, don't you? I do, but uh, yeah. most of my filmmaking has been done on an open circuit for a specific reason. Okay. Which I was going to ask, was that an easy transition? You mean from open circuit to closed circuit? Yeah. I, for me, was it, it, it took a very long time because until I found the proper machine that I was actually completely happy about it, and that's not the point to promote a specific machine against another. Yeah. For me, as long as I was not getting benefits from something and my type of diving did not request that. And even though a lot of times we do what we call exploration in our small 
degree here in Greece. I'm not an explorer like many of the people that are in the book who are actually true explorers per se. So for me, the choice of a rebreather was not a choice of, uh, unless I have a rebreather, I cannot do what I'm doing because mm. our filming, most of our filming tends to be close to the exit for many reasons, for logistics, for safety, for the fact that most of our caves have their nicest bits and pieces that are closer to the exit. And therefore we never really needed to to enter into that uh, area. Also the use of rebreathers in Greece is still in its beginning phase. And to find filmmakers or people who will use lightning and you know to create lights, etc., and use a rebreather was not an easy choice. Plus for filming, as much as it's nice to see the complete silence of a rebreather, bubbles create a lot of drama. Mm. Yeah. Especially in caves when they fly up to the roof and they get trapped, etc. At that point, it was our choice, and also our team was more comfortable with the. Okay, yeah. that's fair. So we um, haven't been to Greece, and Greece is be- you know beautiful, some beautiful islands. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, in another life, I got married on the island of uh, Crete, and uh, very historic place, very beautiful place. It's not um, Greece, to, you know, it's not so much. When you talk, when you hear people talk about cave diving, people maybe first think of Florida or Bahamas as cave diving. Right. Is Greece now coming up and getting more of a popular destination for diving and uh, cave diving? Would you say? Well, Greece is a very important destination for caving. Yeah, like I mentioned before, it's not something that I do, but it's something that once you start to cave dive, often you end up meeting people that are in the community, et cetera. So I realized after that I started cave diving that it was a very important location for caving, including a lot of important expeditions even from England and uh, important cavers from, from, from England come because there is still stuff that is, can be pushed and, and yet to be discovered. When it comes to pure cave diving, Greece offers a huge variety of caves. And this is the difference maybe between Greece and the south of France or Florida or Mexico, mm-hmm. where normally you have one, maybe two kinds of caves, because of course they're built around the system. In Greece, we have the luck that in with one central location, which is not Athens, but is a city in the Peloponnese, we can offer four different types of caves, completely different environments in the range of uh, the same day. So we could visit the cave dive, maybe even sec- make a second dive, come back to our base, and then the next day we go to a completely different cave. One day we can be diving with seals in a sea cave that is completely white gypsum, mm. very shallow, very warm. And then the next day we can be diving in an underwater river of 11 degrees. There is a mountain spring from which the villages are actually drinking water yeah. while swimming in it. And this is what the unique opportunity. And this is what I was trying to promote in a way. Is not going to be the destination for very advanced, if you can say, cave divers who want to come with multiple scooters and multiple rebreathers to push and do exploration. It doesn't mean that there is no room for that, but that's that's not going to be the biggest benefit that they will have because mm-hmm. some of them will... I think it's mostly what I tend to call Greece offers a very good degree of recreational cave diving. And recreational does not mean that is not a full cave dive or anything like that. It just means that maybe some people will do a cave dive today that will be 200, 300 meters. Then the next day we'll go in a cave that has a 200 meter circular passage. 
but in one day they will visit a place with 20 meter tall stalagmites. The next day they will swim with seals in the cave. The next day they will go in an underwater river that they will see tree roots coming down. So people who are very experienced and they maybe will travel from Central Europe to come to us with all their equipment and uh, all the redundancy and multiple scooters, like I said, and multiple rebreathers, some of these caves will be short yeah. or small. But for an average cave diver who just wants to have four nice cave dives, five nice, ten nice cave dives, we can offer four or five different environments completely different between them that will satisfy him or her on, on a level of entertainment. He will maybe not come back and say, you know what, I pushed another 300 meters of line. Maybe you will. Yeah. That's, that's not our primary market. That's not our primary position in that. I, and normally the people who come, they like the combination of good weather, good food, hospitality, and the, and the variety of, uh, of cave diving. That sounds yeah. really good. Yeah, we did have a guest on. Uh, he's a free diver, and he uh, told us about they've been in a cave in Catalonia. Right. Yeah, it's it's very nice. For example, there is a that is a little further away, yeah. and uh, but it's still doable. We won't do it on a, on a short package. Let's say that you know, normally people can come, and in four days we can see we can in five days, including travel from international travel, we can see four caves. So this is something. Yeah. That is, it's, it's worth it, it's very nice. And on the other side, in the Sinti of Athens, we have one of the most important European caves. It's actually, probably it has the longest corridor in the world. It is a massive geothermal system, which means that the more you go into the cave, the warmer it gets to the point that it starts around 21, 22 Celsius in the winter. But inside the cave, you're always above 26 and it gets to 29 at some point. The more you get close to the to the thermic, thermic line, let's say. This cave is massive. It has this main corridor, which is, I would say in some places, it will be 100 meters deep by 60, 70 meters wide. Wow. It is a kilometer long almost, which makes it almost the biggest space. And is that underwater or just- no, it's com completely underwater. Like the entrance of this cave is at 40 meters. So this, for example, it's a double scooter, multi-rebreather dive. Because for a recreational cave diver, we have a special area that, you know, we, we bring them to visit it. And it's interesting because we are at 40 meters and they see underneath them because the clarity and the visibility is so good. So with lights, it's possible to see the bottom and yeah. it looks like it's never there because we are 60 meters below us and we are already at 40 meters. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of variety. It's just that um, what I always try to tell people that want to come to, to visit Greece is like, you know, Let's discuss exactly what your expectations are. Yeah. So that then we can A, match your expectations to the locations that we bring you, and B, maybe even I'm not doing this commercially in the sense that I don't live out of this. I don't want to have somebody come all the way here and then be dissatisfied, you know, disappointed mm -hmm. or feel even tricked by me because, wow, it's a 400 meter cave. Yeah, well, for a lot of people, a 400 meter penetration into a cave, it's totally worth it. Yeah. You know? It really depends what your expectations are. So, yeah, we had rebreather divers that saw some of our films, some of our videos that they said, we want to come there and do like multiple dives in this cave with the rebreather. I'm like, you know, you need one dive with the rebreather because you can stay three hours and see absolutely everything. Then you can go again, see the same things again. Mm -hmm. If you're okay with that, no problem. If you want to have a variety every day, we cannot give it to you in this specific location you're choosing from our 
menu in a way you can say that yeah and uh, also temperatures are changing in, if you come during the, the late spring or early fall season we can dive in 29 degrees in Athens and then the next day we can dive in 11 degrees in the river <laughs> and then the next day again 20 degrees in the sea <laughs> so you and, get full variety yes so this is what it's this this is generally what what is nice our biggest point of interest as a as a cave diving element is our visibility normally yeah. visibility in the caves in greece is 30 meters plus under all circumstances the only okay. time we don't get this is when there is a team going in the same cave just before us yeah. and that is just very temporary yeah okay so normally it could rain or snow or be in the summer no you don't get snow in greece do you it's oh, always hot not really. Well, I've always been. It's always hot. Come on. Yeah. So on the beach. Two of these caves that we're talking about, they are actually on a high altitude, which makes it very exciting also because people see another side of Greece that they've never seen. It's very yeah. green. It has uh, snow if they come in the winter. It's not Orda. It's not Russia, but it's it's nice. It is. Yeah, beautiful place. And. And uh, what's the favourite drink over there? Raki, that's it, Raki. Well, clarification about Raki. Raki is a term. Gem, have you had some Raki? Uzo. Uzo. So, for example, Raki is called in Crete. Uzo is called on the islands of the Cyclades. And Uzo in the mainland is called a very, very specific type of Raki. So, depending where you go, it might have anise, it might not have anise. Yeah. I see. Yeah. It depends. So you have to be, eventually is a distillate of grapes. That's, that's the main I thing. I remember it well, or I'm maybe sure. I don't remember it very well. I'm not well, sure. But hey, you know, let's, we're digressing a little bit. We got you on to talk to you as well about the book. Now you've just come out and I'm, I've seen it everywhere. You know, one of the reason, um, one of the reasons why is that we keep seeing you on Facebook, social media, we're seeing loads of people showing your um, that having their photos, selfies with your book, uh, mostly because they contributed to the book. And you've got loads of people, some big names, some uh, who have con- contributed, and actually some of our previous guests as well have right. all played a part to create this book. It's a great book. You know what was the what made you pick up on that on that on safety. Well, parenthesis. Can I? Shall I retell the story that I said before, or you? It was about your your um, situation, wasn't it? Your yeah yeah. So I'll start now. So if you wanna. But was it? You know, what was it actually? You thought right because you you'd gone about it in a slightly different way. So to some other people who've just gone about stories, they're more of a you you've actually involved other people to make contributions. Right. What made you do that? Well, my uh, initial idea was that it was about time to stop hiding. Yeah. I was not so optimistic in the beginning because I thought it's actually going to be very difficult to convince professionals to admit publicly that they made mistakes, dangerous mistakes, when they actually are the ones who are supposedly taking you and me in training or in expeditions or in, you know, projects. So they're supposed to be doing things properly. So to, to get yeah. them to admit publicly that they did a mistake that could cost their life. And in one of the stories, we actually have a mistake that almost cost the life of a student, which is even more admirable, to be so honest. 
And um, I thought that this will knock on like a very, very difficult wall to break. I was pleasantly surprised to find that 90% of the people were not just interested, they were willing, they were very honest. And the yeah. moment that I requested them to discuss about the book and I told them, please write me the story, the way that you remember it, the way that you felt it, make it in the first person, make it very immediate. So the people need to feel it almost okay. like they hear it from you. And we just did very little editing to make it proper English when the people were not natively speaking English. But we tried to keep the flair and the color. And some of the stories are breathtaking. Some of the stories for whoever has been near to a situation like that or has been afraid of a situation like that, somehow if he or she has been emotionally involved with the story, it's, it's breathtaking. And that was the beauty of it because I thought that I will get, I will ask a hundred people and I will get 20 stories. Yeah. And we were, we were planning to launch a 150 page book. The book is 366 pages because stories kept coming in and more important people kept coming in. And it was not important in the sense of fame for the value of the book. It was important for the sense of fame, for the value of like, if they will talk and if they make mistakes, you and me and everybody will make them too. So we should try to avoid them. And if for some reason we don't manage to avoid them and we still make it out alive, let's try to analyze why it's, this has happened. Let's make sure that we don't hide behind it because yeah. only by sharing or talking or doing anything about it by hiding it. Mm -hmm. And that was, the, that was the idea. And everybody was so excited about it. I yeah. have to tell you that I had a very different opinion about the diving community. I didn't have a bad one, but I had a specific opinion about egos in diving, about all this star system in diving, which was completely destroyed in a good sense the moment I started working on the book. And maybe yeah. now the book, if I will make a second version of the book now, it will be easier. But at the moment, there was nothing. I was nobody to them. Many of them I didn't even know. Mm. They were all immediately responsive and um, realized immediately the importance of this book. So kind of shows the closeness of the diving world, don't you think? Especially, you know, it's been a strange year and so. Um, but it's, it's good that the, you got such a good positive response from so many people. And, you know, that's really good. Who are open to share their stories and you know the same thing with cave diving i personally think cave diving is the safest absolute safest type of diving there is yeah and the reason why is because in my opinion i have realized it through learning and teaching the reason why is that because it's so incredibly unforgiving you just don't mess with it mm. you don't uh, people will i have seen people cutting corners with rebreathers I have seen them cutting corners with deep diving. I have seen people cutting corners as they progress to the technical diving with like re reducing the compression because the extent of that feels like there is always going to be like, okay, I ha will have a problem, but it's not going to be so dramatic with the exception of the rebreather, of course. Yeah. Cave diving on the other side, you don't say like, you know, well, worst case scenario, I'll get lost. This is not something people want to get into that. And it's terrifying for everybody, even the most avid explorer or the avid diver. So what happened as a community, and they had to make it that fail-proof. If you follow the rules in cave diving, and there is, it's interesting because lately in, in teaching, even some, some elements, like it used to be for years that they will say, 
we will teach, okay, let's say me and you, we are cave, the three of us are cave diving, we're coming back at some point, knock on wood, we realize that, you know, Gemma is not there. Okay, now we have to look for her. It was never a protocol of how, how much time and which way we look for her. Yes, we look for her by going backwards, by signaling, but how much time? The moment we, me and you looking for her, we go away from our plan. Yeah. Me and you, we're starting to consume double the quantity of gas. And me or you, we are already in the danger zone in our mind. So me and you, in that moment, we're already starting the countdown. Okay, no more. One more minute and then we have to go. Lately, we placed a protocol in teaching in that, that it has very much to do with gas management from the beginning of the dive. So in an event like that right now, the way that I teach it, etc., if our dive is, let's say, one hour, and we have an X amount of time that is supposed to be our backup gas to come back for emergencies. We're using part of that gas related in time or in gas for how much time we have to look for Gemma. Mm. So if we decide that, okay, now we have to look for her and we have 10 minutes. I have seen that in these 10 minutes, we make much longer distance because there are 10 minutes that we are calm. Meaning even in the case of an extreme emergency like that, like a body separation, we don't leave our control state, breathing, and protocol. We know that we're going to go from point A to maximum point B, which is 10 minutes, let's say, or yeah. 30 PSI, sorry, 30 bar, and then come back. Hopefully, during that time, we'll do our best to find her, and she will be back safe with us. Yeah. Because before, it used to be like, okay, when that happens, that's such an extreme emergency, you need to do your best to look for your body, and if you don't, nobody's going to judge you, but it was vague. That didn't help. Even this now has been changed and is being, at least from some agencies, been taught differently with a protocol that makes it extremely safe. And this is an extreme scenario. So cave diving is progressing slowly, slowly, and is becoming very safe, even in yeah. the most unsafe of conditions. And that's, that's what's beautiful about it. So maybe that is why we are seeing, there is, no, there is so much cave and mine diving lately that we haven't seen anything like that before. Yeah, and, and the accidents are incredibly rare. Yeah, it's good to hear. It's, it's Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I mean, of course, nobody wants to hear about people getting hurt. So, uh, so how did you go about? Uh, did you literally contact people that you knew and you know have a list of divers that you contacted for the book to then ask them to sort of have a think about whether they wanted to contribute? Well, the book I. I collaborated on a consulting level with Eduardo Pavia, the Italian mm -hmm. uh, deep water explorer. He mentioned to me a few names that he thought it would be good for the book that I didn't know. He contacted them for me. And then I spoke through also with Michael Menduno from, from, from America that also contributed a few names in that. And eventually we all know who are the names that we want to read about. Some of them I knew, some of them we were what we call real friends on Facebook, like we will actually speak. Some of them we were like, accepted friendship on Facebook, but never spoke. <laughs> and uh, it was easy because because of my past into media and photography, I knew that I needed to get like a, like if, if I need to get a big name in my film, it's easier to find the co-star. Yeah. So once I spoke to Phil Short and uh, he said like, you know, sure, I'll do it. Then that was my pitching. When I feel I'm doing this and Phil is doing it. So what about you? And it kind of, went ahead after that and it was it was easy so his contribution i mean i've told him many times but you know he maybe didn't realize that his contribution. do you find the magic in every dive though pardon me do you find the magic in every dive what do you mean 
that's what Phil told us. You got to, you got to find the magic in every dive. And we yeah. liked that. We thought that was really good. Yes, and well, did you? I, have, sorry. Do you have any surprises from people? Yes, I have a very very famous, respected, and well-known divers that are talking to me about waiting mistakes when they started diving, and it's nice to see the fact that they're humans. Yeah. And yeah. it's nice to see that they still remember that they're humans. Yeah, and it's really good because there are books out there people have written about safety and accidents and diving, but it's not from the actual person. And you know, your book, I think that's what makes it so different, isn't it? Because it's about yeah. real people that are three-dimensional and yeah, they they've been there and done that. Yeah, so that was the that was the big surprise for me. That some of the stories were they are tales of incredible pushing the boundaries in ways that me and you would not imagine ever wanting to do. And then thinking, of course, you're going to get stuck <laughs> get down in a mine with like rocks on top of your legs if you do this. And then in the other case, you're thinking, well, you're doing a deep decompression dive and you didn't really try your new heated vest. So therefore your dry suit is squeezing you and you almost cannot breathe and you have another hour to go. It's interesting because you're living these moments and these are all things that we have done. And then maybe some people will think, you know what? I will never go to do an important dive without trying my equipment before. I will never yeah. bring a new piece of equipment in a new dive. These are all small, subtle lessons that we can get from each one of these stories. And some of them, I mean, there is Mag Young's story. That for me, is a very important story in the book. The Basically, the, he's the manufacturer that does the keys rebreathers and yeah. he describes very visually even though it's through text uh, carbon monoxide poisoning mm -hmm. and i have been afraid of carbon monoxide since forever because something you don't see you don't smell you don't understand it's the scariest thing so yeah. and uh, i will analyze my cylinders even when they will have simply air from a normal compressor even if it's a big diving center mm -hmm. i went through laughing through anything people accused me that i just want to show my analyzer to the people and i almost no I, I actually saved my life because on a rebreather dive this summer i went to take a cylinder and uh, it was it had contamination co2 contamination and but it's something like that that can um well i was gonna say give you a bad day but you know it can you know, end it. And uh, it's the those basic things, isn't it? Making sure that getting them basic things right. And I don't think you can be too careful like that. No, if you, but again, you can reduce to an almost obsessive level certain things. Yeah. I mean, people carry four backup lights. No problem. But if we are four divers, three, back, three lights together, it means 12 lights for all of them to fail. I'm working with statistics right now, but not to analyze my gas. I just need one failure to yeah. have a problem. And, and I have seen it happen. I have measured two or three times bad gas. Some of it was doable. And in this case, it was into my oxygen cylinder, which would have meant it was probably not a good thing for me to go through. And I don't know if it was survivable at the end. And I'm glad I didn't do it. Yeah. So his story explains more or less what would have happened if I would have used that cylinder. And it's interesting because he survived it in the way he describes the story out of pure luck and not really, he didn't even have a good day because of the support team, because of his ability to understand and because of luck. So for me, luck yeah. is never going to be my body while diving. Luck is right there. Yeah. 
Okay, there is a don't know two meter seal swimming in the cave and liking to make selfies with me. That's luck. Fine, not when it comes to safety. So no, no, definitely not. No. And uh, so a lot of the stories are are giving all of them somehow they're telling you don't do what I did. Pretty much, mm-hmm. we are assuming that they will not do what they did again. And most of them they talk about it, but also it's a good lesson. And if everybody will follow all the lessons in the book much safer diver i mean there is many of them yeah and it's and it's interesting how how we do progress in anything we do in life from cooking to anything and we feel comfortable like you know okay i don't need to do the things yeah. the way that i was taught because for me it's more comfortable to do it like this and like that okay cooking is forgiving a lot comparing to to diving it's and new experience as well doesn't it yeah and uh, but with diving you need to be alive to build that experience. Uh, so yeah, definitely. It does help. Yeah, it, it helps a lot. And it's important <laughs> to follow these, um, these rules. What is beautiful through, the, through some of the tales in the story also is the fact, in, in the book, is the fact that they are not over-dramatized, but they yeah. have all, all the importance, meaning they are not watered down. We try to keep the language. We try to keep the cursing when it was there. We try to keep the... Um, because I'm sorry, if you are stuck without oxygen at 80 meters deep and you have to decompress and you have no more oxygen in your rebreather, maybe the four letter starting with an F letter is appropriate. Maybe you yeah. it goes through your head. And, and they managed to do a fantastic job. I mean, bear in mind that most of them, they're not writers, they're not storytellers, they're not uh, journalists either. So they managed to do a fantastic work. Also, we had the luck to be supported by them by the in-depth uh, editing team from Florida that actually took this and made it book ready. Yeah. And so therefore the stories kept their flair, kept their color, but they are more literature appropriate in a way. Okay. Do you think you'll do a second book, a second sequel? Well, the podcast is just one week too early because we are working on something bigger than a second book. Ah. But I will let you know when it's when it's closer to the time. About a second book, we were discussing it. The initial idea was to venture into the other field of interest of mine, which is mountaineering, alpinism, rock climbing, and everything. But there is a book called Close Calls from the late 70s, early 80s, and it has to do with that. So maybe we need to... The fact that the book is even called the same way, yeah. I feel it will be a little bit, not offensive, but it will be not very respectful of the original author. It will be, I mean, the book is, the name of the book, because it's an expression, is an open source. It's like, there's no copyright on that. But if I also deal with the same subject, it might be, I, I get into a dangerous moral dilemma right there. So we're discussing it. Yeah. Well, if you uh, look for a second book, I can tell people about the, um, why you should do your zip up on a dry suit? Well, you will be surprised. I got an award for that like a couple of years ago with, well, with students. Yeah. Well, one of the stories that didn't make it into the book because it was when we were at a, one of my students, I experienced with him exactly that. He had a brand new dry suit. It was one of his first dry suit experiences. The water, it was very warm. So when he didn't close properly the zip and actually flooded with water, didn't feel that it was cold. When we entered into the cave and after 20 minutes and we are far away from, from the entrance, we surface in an air bubble and he, he's shaking uncontrollably because at this point the water is like cave water wow. and he's fully full of water. 
And that was an incredibly close call based on something that as simple as not closing your zip of your dry suit well and not having the experience to understand that now I'm leaking water. Yeah. He thought it was humidity, diving all your life a wetsuit and then suddenly diving a dry suit on a cape dive. It was also a lesson for me, not recommended. No, definitely not. I, I was lovely and snug and warm in my thermals and dry suit until the freezing cold water of about eight degrees all rushed in. I definitely knew about it. That's for certain. When, when but, it's that cold, it's great. Like when we go to dive in Russia, it's uh, amazing. Your seal in your dry gloves is not perfect. And in 10 seconds, you feel needles going all the way down your arm yeah, because nice. it is five degrees. But when it's dangerously close to what is a comfort zone, so when the water is 26, yeah, and slowly, and slowly it becomes 24, 25, and you're just thinking, oh, I'm just cold. But you don't feel this kind of immediate interference yeah. of the cold water on your body. That is where it's more dangerous. So I'm not afraid of things like that in, in, in eight degrees water, like you said. It's more temperature waters that is like it's problematic so part of your book the uh, proceeds are going to charity correct that yep. was also inspired by um, an english contributor i don't really remember now who he was but it was an english uh, famous cave diver that at some point he just simply asked me like you know what i'm thinking to do with the proceeds and i didn't think profit at the time because that was not the intention and i realized that you know it's not possible at least where I looked, the angle that I was looking at for it, I cannot just get 60 people's stories, sell the book and make money out of that. Yeah. So I thought like, you know what, you catched me unprepared. So we need to find something out. I spoke with Michael Manduna and he said like, you know what, Dan has a beautiful program that gives back um, to the divers that were not lucky enough to call a close call and it supports their families that are left, you know, without support or, you know, any other issues that are diving accident related. And uh, we thought it was the perfect marriage. So we discussed it with Dan Europe, who immediately saw the opportunity. And 50% of the profits will go, will go to the support of this. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah. We're very, very happy about it. Uh, uh, Claudius Obermeyer right. Fund. I hope I pronounced that right. Jem, if I pronounced that right? You did. I, I didn't. because, But you did. <laughs> okay. That's brilliant. Yeah. So um, we have non-divers listening to our podcast. Uh, we have divers, we've experienced divers, but we've also got that field of the overconfident divers. So have you got any advice for all the people that listen in terms of the book? That you uh, well, first of all, buy the book because it's a very entertaining kind of diving reading. And I think it's interesting because all these people are not people that are other, you know, not existing anymore because they're like too old or coming from the past or sto anonymous stories. These are people that we see and that we hear every day and it's somehow it, it brings them closer to home. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like I said, the initial idea was to show that these superstars make mistakes the same way that uh, big boxers make mistakes and they get knocked down. In this case, they make mistakes. Thankfully, they managed to finish the game and, you know, get out alive. But like we said, diving is not so forgiving like so many other sports. So it's important to, to avoid this close call as much as possible. Yeah. Overconfidence, it's a recurring, because basically the structure of each story in the book, at least initially we tried to make it like this. Who am I? Just bullets at the beginning so people understand who they are. And then 
a first person explanation of the story with some emphasis at the end, what do they think it went wrong and what they learned from that. Mm -hmm. Some people kept it and they actually use it in their text and they will actually write, okay, what went wrong, this went wrong, what did I learn, this I learned. And some people just integrate it in a more narrative way. But there is always an ending quote or an ending paragraph that will explain, okay, you know what? You can never have too many tie-ups with you. Sometimes it's funny like that, which once you read the whole story makes sense. And yeah. some, you know what I mean? So there is always a lesson to be learned from that. And you can be as experienced and it can be very, very close to your type of diving and thinking that you have covered every angle. Well, you, some of you haven't covered this angle that these mega divers also didn't. They got lucky. Yeah. And let's get the gift that they survived it for us. You know, let's bring more cable, yeah. cable ties. <laughs> Always come in handy. Always yes. come in handy. So Stratus, uh, where is your most favorite dive location? Have you got one or is there one that's on your bucket list that you would love to dive? Well, uh, yes. I like shallow recreational water diving in Egypt because I think uh, on a purely visual level, in my opinion, there is no better place that I have ever been all around the world that I can see coral and uh, what we all started with, you know, the recreational yeah. diving that you can do in Egypt, especially on a liveaboard. It's for me the most, it's a dreamy situation. First of all, you're all around people that dive with you. It's warm, yeah. it's shallow, and uh, yeah, sure, there is sharks, but you know. <laughs> it's so good, nice to hear you say that, you know, because, um, you, know, you know, obviously you, you do do deep dives as well. And, um, but to say that you actually enjoy doing the shallow fun stuff as well, not saying that the other one's not fun, but to put you know what I mean, you're doing the fun, you still get the fun out of doing those type of dives. Absolutely. I prefer any dive really? shallow than, than deep, no matter yeah. what. So shallow caves for me, perfect. Yeah. Depth per se, it's always, I mean, in the beginning, I used to think it's nice to go deeper to see that you can. Then it became, I will go deeper only if it makes sense. And right now I'm in the phase that I'm thinking, I hope I don't need to go deep because yeah. it's easier, it's, there's more light, it's safer. There's less things to carry, less things to worry. I don't find any benefit to be in a cave, let's say, that on my bottom timer I see 40 meters. I prefer to see six meters, five. Anything, under, anything under four meters that I'm not too buoyant, I'm fine. Yeah. So, and uh, therefore, yes, I am a very big fan. Another location that I really like, again, very shallow, is the, the, the gypsum cave of Orda in Russia. I don't know if you guys have been or seen it or, or heard of it. Have people mentioned it, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I think it's the equivalent of a liveaboard when it comes to cave diving. <laughs> because it's an old base that basically there is housing and the diving center and the dining area that are steps away from the steps that bring you in the cave. The cave is open 24 hours a day. You can dive whenever you want. You're absolutely independent. People are only there to offer you support of what you need mm -hmm. and food. And the, the dives are very, very, very shallow. Like you get out with there with profiles that are seven meters average depth. Maximum depths we have seen are 18 meters and don't necessarily need to even go there. 
and you can do this incredibly beautiful freezing dives <laughs> very very shallow so that for me was when i first went there and then i started bringing people from europe because the big issue there is that somebody needs to speak russian and uh, i semi do so it kind of worked enough for me to be able to bring clients and you know have fun with translators etc <laughs> and uh, but it's, it's the whole contest yeah. content it's not just um, the dive itself it's everything Mm. You have minus 40 degrees outside, minus 30. Then you get in the water, you have ice stalactites on top of your head. Everything is very picturesque and very different. Mm. So this this was my favorite cave diving, absolutely better than anything else I have done anywhere else in the world. And Egypt for warm water diving and for sea diving, I have never seen anything like that also. Yeah, These are my two favorite spots, yeah. Yeah, and also it's good to hear kind of the accessibility of cave diving. It's not all deep and dark. It's, you know, such a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. No, you, you need a dry suit. <laughs> yes. Uh, do you prefer warm water or cold water diving? Oh, I prefer warm water diving. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer warm water diving, even though I prefer dry suit diving than wetsuit diving. This is just a matter of uh, habit and uh, comfort. And uh, it takes me a much longer time to put a wetsuit on, maybe because I don't use it that often. It's always a struggle. I push my limit in the dry suit deeper in the summer that I can until people will complain about the odor of my undergarments. <laughs> and then, hey. I, yes, they do, they do. And it doesn't matter. You can wash it every Lynx day. Africa. You can't beat it for that. Sorry? Lynx Africa. I, Shower in a can. What is that? Deodorant. Just... Oh, yeah. No, but it's not me so much. It's the moment that I remove the undergarment and I hang it anywhere. I need to hang it far away from people. But it's yeah. not just me. I think it's everybody. So once that gets to the point that my clients are like, uh, or students are like looking at me funny, then I'm like, okay, tomorrow wetsuit. It's fine. <laughs> when I use the wetsuit after three, four days, I'm like so excited because it gives you another sense of freedom. So warm water... It's nice. This summer, I was lucky enough to spend the season in Sardinia that the water were incredibly good visibility. We're doing cave dives with like uh, with cave water, but still still tempered enough in, to, to go with like the wetsuit and wonderful 26 plus degree open ocean dives. That was that was super pleasant. If you could have a billboard, okay, all right, and you could put anything you like on that one billboard, a message, a statement picture whatever you like but you want to get a particular message out to the millions of people who on the world in the world what would you put on it and why well i used to have something that was very close to home again and it had to do also with experience through cave diving the fact that how much we disconnect our life on top of the earth when it comes to the way that we consume things, the way that we treat water, the way that we use or waste water. And then somehow when you're cave diving, it doesn't mean that you see the pollution, which in some areas you can start to see that in the dive itself. But when you're in the dive, you understand that, you know, wow, this comes from above. And now I have this water that was probably passing through fields of of I don't know how many chemicals that are used into to fertilizing the, the earth in order to eat the tomato in the winter, like it's so mm. necessary, for example. So you get into feel closer 
to what we don't see. And, you know, the sea is a, is a notorious place that we tend to not care so much about how polluted it is. No matter, there are so many campaigns about it, but it always feels like, well, look at the sea, it's so nice and calm and blue and it seems to be powerful and there. And in the meantime, if you see some of the places and if you revisit the same coral places that you've been visiting before, even without really wanting to, you will notice a decay. Mm-hmm. And that is scary because it's fast. So I, if I will make a billboard, it might have to be related to something like that. Like that, you know, no, anything that we do, it, it doesn't stop the moment that we do it. You know, it will actually affect ourselves, other people and the planet. And we don't always know the, how big the echo of our action will go through. Yeah. Maybe something as small as something that feels like irrelevant to us today, it will affect a whole community, a whole ecosystem, a whole species. Actually, certainly does. So we should be more aware of what we do, divers or not, on, on how much our decisions are affecting our lives and okay. the lives of anything around us. That would be That's one. Good. And then another billboard that I will do, if you allow me to make two, just in case you know we, we have the opportunity, it will be probably related to the book and it will be more dive related and it will be like, you know, mistakes are human. So he's actually incredibly brave to, to admit your mistakes. It's, it doesn't make you less of a, of, of a good diver, less of, a, of an adventurer, less of a sportsman. If you hide mistakes, preferably don't hide them from yourself. And this is a big mistake people do. It's a time so it's not so much, yeah, it's not so much that they hide it. We didn't used to hide it from, I didn't hide it from you. Because if we will go to dinner and then you will talk and you will ask me, have you ever been scared? I will tell you the story because I will remember it mm. and talk about it. And most people would. It's a matter of like, we don't want to talk about it because we want to forget it because it's so terrifying. Yeah. That's my impression. But mistakes are human. So let's embrace them, bring them out. And like that, we, we will make them less, That's we will make them more approachable. And you know, they're there. Look at this. The mistake and the danger is right here. So don't touch it. Let it go. Yeah, and everybody can learn from it as well, can't they? And, yeah. and it helps with seeing people being so open as well, that it helps other people get more. Yeah, yeah. through that. Yeah. Good. Just out of interest, have you seen any, um, on, in some of them caves that you've been diving, have you seen any, like, plastic waste or signs of, you know, the world above now creeping into some of these caves? No. No, because... Um, I was, it's probably just luck, or maybe it's the places that I mostly visit. I have, I think most cave systems that I visit tend to be, like I said, other open sea, and therefore they are very big systems. Yeah. And uh, actually, no, they, they could be, they're more prone to actually garbage going into them. But I didn't. I was lucky enough not to see that. I have seen changes in temperature in water that was unusual for the season. I have seen changes in water visibility that was unusual from for the place. Yeah. I have seen things like that. And I have seen when we did projects related to water quality, I have seen huge decay or change in salinity or hardness of water because maybe chemicals are used on top and then some elements from the rock that was not just water dissolvable yeah because of these chemicals are actually spreading now into the water system. I have seen that, but so far I have to tell you, either I was lucky or romantic enough that I actually felt like always very tempted to even drink the water often in the cave. Yeah, so, that's good. <laughs> yeah. 
Not a good idea when the water when the cave is a gypsum cave because then gypsum get dissolved with water and therefore you're you're basically drinking salts. Yeah. yeah. Not going to do you much good. <laughs> no. no definitely well, it was like aspirin water, basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're very good answers. Yeah. Really yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is this is a great thing, and I think that's it's wonderful because we see a lot of things, you know, from very specific equipment-related podcasts, like you know the one of Steve Davis in in New Zealand, and there are a lot of things happening out of England, etc. I think it's diving is starting to be a very even though it's such a lonely sport somehow, it's turning up to be a very community-based yeah. activity. And, and that is great because we cannot all, I mean, the reason why 2020 was also so depressive is because we're all missing all these big events and conferences, et cetera, where we meet not so much to show off to each other things, you know, just to reconnect because yeah. I, think, I think to be a diver, you have to be a special kind of person, you know, special kind of crazy, but also a special kind of person. And... Uh, does help. And it helps, you know. You know, community, it's it's great. And, and me, through the book, I realized the sense of community in a degree that I didn't experience before all these years. You know, in the last 20 years, I had a different opinion. Not a bad one, like I said, but different. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, like, pleasantly surprised. So I'm very happy about it. It's true. What You know, exa- I agree with what you've said. And uh, uh, I think for us to get through and keep the sport alive and keep keep turning over you know we've all got to be uh communicating and networking as much as what we can through these you know thank goodness for the for the power of zoom that we can do these sort of things and uh, keep networking uh, because you know at some stage we'll be back you know all these things will be will be be able to socialize again which would be really great yeah let's, you know, let's, let's we've all got to work together for the greater good of the sport we encourage more young people. Yeah, you know, the diving has the, the the problem that you know it's it's equipment related and often it's expensive. Because if you think about it, a recreational diver in Greece, let's say twenty something year old guy or girl that works and makes an average salary of five hundred fifty euros a month. Yeah. Without even buying equipment, let's say he's already done with his or hers training. If he wants to dive every week. He's looking at 120 euros a month, 30 euros a dive, just to go on a group of diving, etc. Yeah. That is a fourth of his salary. Yeah. That's a lot of investment. It's not basketball. You buy basketball and you play with your friends. So there, it's kind of normal that the age group is not exactly grasping the, the youngest yeah. kind of people. Because it's, and the, the more you progress into technical diving, it's, oh, yeah. uh, it, it gets worse and worse, yes. But, Hey, more younger people, more women, welcome. Yeah, definitely. Please come to diving. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But thank you very much for your time and thanks for, for joining us on the big scuba. That's brilliant. Thank, thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate your contribution into the success of the book. And thank you very out. much. There you go. Great. Have a good evening, guys. All right. Thanks, Stratus. Bye. No problem. Thank you very much. Bye bye. So welcome back. That was really good and uh, totally enjoyed that. And it's very good to hear all about Greece and uh, the diving over there. And um, and obviously hearing about the book was really good. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, no, interesting guy. And yeah, I'm amazed at the caving we have right on our doorstep in Europe. Yeah, 
yeah, that's brilliant. So, uh, you know, that's very good. And thank you to Strats for coming on and uh, sh sharing some time with us. So, uh, I know he's a busy, busy guy and uh, got lots going on. Yeah, and I think he's got lots in the pipeline as well, the way he spoke. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant, you know, so that's really good. And uh, so we do hope you enjoyed that little uh, episode. So that'd be really good. Uh, coming up on the Big Scoop podcast, next episode is... Episode 59. I'll have a go at pronouncing this lady's name. Berger. Bergette Dida Berger Wilms. Dida Wilms. I knew I'd get that. Yeah, she's from the Women Divers Hall of Fame. So and she's just about yeah. to release some children's books about the underwater world. Yeah, it's done some really exciting things. So look out for that episode. Right, brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much. And we will speak to you on the next episode. On the next episode, yeah. Happy listening. <laughs> yeah, enjoy. Bye. Thank you.